2: In an experiment.
0: Uh,
4: what is life so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature.
2: Nature.
5: Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, why video calls are bad for brainstorming
1: and the cells skipping a crucial step in their division. I'm Nick Patry,
5: And I'm Benjamin Thompson. First up this week, reporter Sharmini Bundell has been looking into a question we've probably all been asking ourselves recently. Just how are video calls affecting the way we work?
0: Hiya, can you hear me alright? Video calls. Over the last two years, I've seen a lot of people's faces more often on my laptop than I have in real life, which has its pros and cons.
1: So I can't quite hear you. Um, For our episode.
3: Um, Oh, no. Sorry, you cut out there for a sec. Was that last bit again?
2: Okay, so he's just texted me and said he's lost all his internet, like even his phone.
1: He's still there. This does not bode well. (laughs)
0: Video calls can be frustrating, yet they also allow more people than ever before to work from home. But say you've fixed all the technical issues, you've got great internet, and you need a one-on-one meeting with your boss to brainstorm ideas for a new project. Which is better, getting together face-to-face or jumping on a virtual call? A new paper in Nature this week is starting to provide some data on what difference it might actually make.
3: When the pandemic hit, I had so many people reaching out to me asking about, like, how to run Zoom studies and what's the research out there. This
0: is Melanie Brooks, a researcher with an interest in creativity and innovation. Melanie wanted to directly compare in-person and virtual conversations.
3: This work looks at what we are now calling the new normal, which is virtual interaction, and how that might affect innovation.
0: To test this idea, Melanie set up an experiment – involving pairs of people given a creative challenge. Participants
3: would either go into the same physical space, which was just an empty lab room, or we would split them into two separate lab rooms and have them communicate um, with video technology.
0: Participants were asked to come up with creative uses for particular everyday objects, as many ideas as they could in five minutes. The results showed that the in-person pairs generated more ideas.
3: We were really interested when we saw the results. That simply being in the same physical space as someone else improves idea generation. So in-person groups are generating around 16 or 17 ideas, whereas the virtual condition is generating between 13 and 15. But is this really that surprising? When we first started talking about this research idea to different people... A lot of people mentioned, yeah, Zoom's just a worse version. Of course, people are just bad at Zoom. Like, everything is going to be worse at Zoom.
0: So maybe this has nothing to do with creativity. Melanie tested this with a second task.
3: And what we asked participants was to identify their most creative idea.
0: The idea selection task uses very different skills from the brainstorming task.
3: But what's interesting is video conferencing wasn't universally bad. When it came to idea selection, we found, if anything, the virtual condition was better. The virtual condition identified a higher quality idea than the in-person condition. Now, this is a smaller effect, so we can't say for certain that they're better, but they certainly aren't worse.
0: So what is it that might make idea generation, and only idea generation, harder over a video call?
3: We looked at how much participants felt they connected with the other through self-report. We looked at unconscious connection through mimicry. We looked at trust through a monetary game. We also looked at how much there were speaker switches to see if there was trouble with communication coordination. We looked at whether there was crosstalk where people were talking over each other for communication coordination. What we find is for the social connection, no difference between conditions. For the communication coordination, we did find slight differences, but it couldn't explain the effect. Even controlling for these differences, we still find that um, the virtual condition performs worse when it comes to idea generation.
0: But there was one difference between virtual and in-person conversations that did seem to make a difference. And Melanie spotted it by tracking people's gaze.
3: Are you looking at your partner? Are you looking at the surrounding environment? Or are you looking at the task? And it's interesting, again, if you ask people what their intuition is, they think that there's more social connection when we're in person. And so we probably engage with our partner more. Um, but we found the exact opposite. So we found that in the virtual condition, people are looking significantly more at their partner, almost double. And because of that, it's at the expense of their broader environment.
0: Previous research has shown that people are more creative when they're less focused.
3: And we realized there's a difference in the physical setup because when I'm communicating in person, I have the entire environment as our shared environment. Wherever I look, that is going to be part of my partner's environment too. However, when we're talking virtually, our shared environment is pretty limited to the screen. And so if I want to show engagement, if I want to be involved in this interaction, it makes more sense for me to limit myself to a screen. And we thought that this could lead to more focus we should hurt idea generation because we're actually the most creative when we're unfocused and free.
0: So rather than online conversations being inherently always better or worse, It could be that we need to adjust how we talk based on what we want to achieve.
3: I use this now all the time. I don't have evidence for this yet, but based on my theory, I always suggest turning off the camera during idea generation. So you can walk around, you can look around.
0: The idea that virtual meetings could impact things like focus and idea generation is likely to be of great interest to people around the world. But it's not as simple as saying, right, let's get back to the office then.
3: It's not like we have to be in person. It's not also that it doesn't matter whether or not we're in person.
0: Melanie is keen to test her theories further, but there's a bit of a problem.
3: All of this research has been halted because we can't collect in-person data um, without people wearing masks. And that, of course, completely changes the experience. So there's tons of different experiments I would love to run that I haven't been able to do because we can't run in-person studies right now.
5: That was Melanie Brooks from Columbia Business School in the U.S. For more on this research, be sure to check out the show notes, where there'll be a link to Melanie's paper. And Sharmini's also made a film about the work, where you can see some people trying to be creative on video call. And Nick, one of those people is you.
1: Yes, in the video, you can see me make a little bit of a fool of myself as I try to think up ideas for how to use a frisbee. It's a cool video. Be sure to check it out. There'll be a link to it in the show notes. Coming up on the podcast, though, we'll be hearing about a new sort of cell division that's been found in the skin cells of zebrafish. Stick around for that. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights, read by Dan Fox.
4: A painting of a deer on an ancient wall fragment from a Guatemalan pyramid could be the earliest known evidence of the Maya calendar, according to researchers. Excavations at a Maya site in lowland Guatemala called San Bartolo uncovered a pyramid complex constructed over hundreds of years, with newer additions erected on top of the rubble of older structures. A wall fragment from one early phase dated at around 2,200 years old included a depiction of a deer head and the Maya numeral meaning seven, potentially representing a day in the Maya calendar system, according to the team behind the work. Ancient cultures across Mesoamerica, including the Maya, used a 260-day calendar which identified each day using one of 20 names and a number from 1 to 13. The authors say the seven deer glyph might represent the earliest evidence yet for this religious calendar, which is still used by some indigenous communities in the region. Make a date with that research in Science Advances. Tourists' sweet snacks could be damaging the metabolism of rare iguanas in the Bahamas. On the Exuma Islands, tourists routinely feed skewers of grapes to local northern Bahamian rock iguanas, but these grapes are much higher in sugar than the reptiles' typical fare. In humans, a high intake of sugar can lead to health problems, including diabetes, so scientists wondered whether the Bahamian lizard's sugary diet could give them the iguana equivalent. To find out, a team gave sugar water to 16 captive green iguanas every other day and also measured the blood sugar levels of 113 northern Bahamian iguanas. Around half routinely ate grapes, but the rest lived on islands off the tourist trail and fended for themselves. As predicted, the reptiles fed on sugar water or grapes had a reduced ability to regulate the sugar in their blood. The researchers call for studies to determine whether this threatens the health and survival of the iguanas, which are at high risk of extinction. Read that research in full in the Journal of Experimental Biology.
1: This week in Nature, there's a paper that shows
6: a new kind of cell division. When we first saw it, we are not sure whether what we saw is real. This is Chen Hoi-Chen, one of the
1: researchers behind the new paper. He and his colleagues were looking at how skin cells in zebrafish work together as the animal grows. But while they were doing it, they saw something rather unusual. In some cases, the skin cells on these fish could divide but
6: without replicating their DNA. So we found that some skin cells can undergo two rounds of the cell divisions without the DNA replication. Now, if it's been a while since your last biology class, let me put it this
1: way. For most cells, duplicating all their DNA before they divide is kind of important. It means that each new cell has a full copy of all the genes and instructions they need to, well, function as a cell. But that wasn't the case for these cells. Instead, when one of these cells divided, the new cell just took a portion of the original's DNA. These two cells could then divide again, resulting in four cells, each made of a portion of the original's DNA. This kind of cell division is counter to what hundreds of years of cell biology have taught us. So Chen was pretty surprised to see this going on. However, there have been similar kinds of division seen in certain kinds of frog and fly embryos, but only after treatment with specific chemicals that prevent DNA replication. In the fish, though, this division was part of what was just happening during their normal growth. Given that this kind of division is practically unheard of, Chen was keen to check his workings to ensure that this division without
6: DNA duplication
1: was actually occurring
6: we were thinking could be something wrong with our tool. Maybe our reagents uh, is leaky. There could be, you know, many other explanations. So we uh, later do a series of controls. And also we conduct very extensive assays to make sure there is no DNA being synthesized in this uh, skin layer. Ultimately, Chen was convinced by
1: what he saw. There really didn't seem to be any DNA replication going on in these skin cells. But as I mentioned, DNA is kind of important.
6: So why was this happening at all? Chen's got an idea. We think that this division is a temporary measure the animal use to expand their body surface. The team showed that this strange division only seemed to
1: happen about a week into the zebrafish's life, a time when they have a bit of a growth spurt. Then a few days later, this odd division stopped which suggests that it may be a way to just make sure there's enough skin to go around during this early growth period. Covering the surface of the animal, preventing everything from leaking out, in this case, was more important than having all the usually essential DNA. But if these cells were lacking DNA, were they not a bit, you know, worse?
2: For sure, for sure, because obviously the fact that they don't have the genes to make the appropriate proteins, that's essential.
1: This is Sarah Wickstrom, a cell biologist who's been writing about Chen's paper in a News & Views article.
2: But since these cells are anyway kind of on their way to die, because there's this constant turnover of epithelium, it's probably not so important for them to, to maintain total functionality. So it's likely that their most important function is to provide the surface coverage, and then since they are bound to die, all the other functions are less essential.
1: This lines up with Chen's thinking into why this is happening, that these cells are most likely just temporary. But for Sara, this raises many fundamental questions about cell biology itself.
2: First of all, I think it's just very interesting because basically accurate replication of the genome is critically important to prevent cancer or even to just maintain cell viability. And that's why... Cells have developed a lot of so-called checkpoints to kind of control that their replication has happened perfectly before they enter cell division. And now it just will be interesting to understand how these cells potentially bypass these checkpoints.
1: Chen proposes that one part of the mechanism might be to do with the skin cells getting a bit stretched. As the animal grows quickly, the cells on the outer surface come under tension and this tension could open certain ion channels that potentially signal to the cells that they should undergo this curious division. Sarah thinks this is likely, but how exactly this leads to the odd division isn't quite clear.
2: But of course, it is quite well understood how this tension opens the channel, but how then this leads to this very specific signal of cell division. We, we have no clue. So that's going to be the next exciting avenue.
1: For 180 years, scientists have largely only considered division with DNA replication in animal species. So this new finding raises a whole lot of questions. When cells do things like divide without properly sorting their DNA out, that usually means cancer. But in this case, the cells seem to be pretty under control. For Chen... One key question he's looking to answer is, how widespread is this strange division? Does it occur in other species?
6: Because we see this unique cell division event in zebrafish, it would be uh, very interesting right? to identify whether uh, the same mechanisms would also exist in other vertebrate species, such as humans. That was Chen Chen from
1: Academica Sinica. You also heard from Sarah Wickstrom, from the Max Planck Institute for Molecular Biomedicine, and from the University of Helsinki. If you want to see these strange cells dividing, we've also made a video about it. You can find that, along with a link to the paper, in the show notes.
5: Finally on the show, as always, it's time for the Briefing Chat, where we discuss some of the articles that have been featured in the Nature Briefing. Nick, why don't you go first this week? What have you found?
1: Well, Ben, I've been reading an article in the New Yorker all about how we can actually study creatures that are delicate and also really far underwater.
5: Right, and when you say really far underwater, I guess I'm thinking about maybe those jellyfish that you sometimes see in nature documentaries that have those kind of amazing light shows they put on but i imagine the pressure down there is enormous but when you sort of take them up to look at them in a lab that pressure becomes a lot lower and maybe isn't particularly good for the jellyfish
1: yeah that's certainly a part of this story these things are really hard to study and this story actually focuses on something called a giant larvacean which has a latin name which i'm going to mangle which is bapho cordaeus stygius And basically, it kind of looks like a big glowing shopping bag. (laughs) And this thing is floating around underwater. And, well, it's very delicate. And as you say, if you bring it to the surface, it will just sort of collapse. So scientists have been trying to figure out how they can study things like this. And they think they've got an idea now.
5: I'm guessing you can't just sort of stick your underwater shopping bag into an MRI scanner then. No, I mean, MRIs
1: have been one of the suggestions for how to do this, but there isn't anything hard in the animal for it to work with and give you that sort of 3D image that will really give you some information about them. So the new idea is to use lasers. So, you know, you have these deep water submersibles that go and like identify things. People are basically trying to use these to capture their creatures, but that's quite difficult. Their creatures could get pulled into the rotors, which is not going to help anyone to study them. So the idea with this is to shoot little lasers at them, and that can illuminate their interiors. And, you know, the sort of information you get from the laser read, you can then use to build it up in a computer and then have a model of how these creatures live and you know interact with the water.
5: Wow underwater submarine lasers Nick I am so in for this story. Has this been tried then so far and what have researchers learned?
1: Yeah so it was tried for this giant lava seant and what is revealed is that the sort of bag part of it this sort of big almost floaty material that's around it may be a way for it actually to filter out large particles that could block up its digestive tract and yeah this is something that we had absolutely no idea about before these researchers you know shot a laser into it.
5: I mean, that's really cool. I mean, I guess the cliche is we know more about the surface of the moon than the base of the oceans, right? And I guess there's loads of creatures out there that we need to learn more about.
1: Yeah, the researchers that were featured in this article study things like this that are sort of soft and deep underwater, that are really hard to get an idea of how they live and what they're like. And they've tried lots of different things in the past, so they're really excited about this new sort of laser approach. And, you know, one of the researchers behind this laser, as well as said already from studying the shopping bag creature, that this could be used as inspiration to make sort of lightweight materials for use in sort of space travel and things like that. So, there's all sorts of cool things to uncover below the sea.
5: Well, Nick, that is an awesome story. Thank you very much. And my story is well, you mentioned space travel there. Mine is very much about space travel and something that I read in. Nature, And it's a new report from an influential panel of US planetary scientists that say it's high time that NASA sent a flagship mission to study the mysteries of the giant planet Uranus.
1: Oh, Uranus is one of my favourite planets, partly because if you mispronounce it, it sounds kind of hilarious, but it is very cool, very far away. And very interesting. And I don't think we know much about it.
5: Yes, you're absolutely right. It is a really, really long way away. A couple of billion kilometres from Earth, pretty much. And the new proposed mission would be the first since Voyager 2 was passed in 1986. And yes, it is quite a strange planet then. So it's an ice giant, this large amount of icy material swirling around a rocky core. And there are lots of scientific mysteries then so uh this planet rotates on its side for example Uh, it has this really complex magnetic field it's got 27 known moons and it has these powerful winds apparently that whip through its atmosphere made up of hydrogen helium and methane and in many cases we don't know a lot about what's driving these
1: wow so there's a lot of mysteries there to uncover But I'm wondering why they're planning to go to this planet now. Like, it's been more than 30 years. It was before I was born that last time they went to this planet. So what's the sort of renewed interest?
5: Yeah, I think one of the drivers behind this, Nick, is kind of we have the technology now to make this happen. But in particular, Falcon Heavy rockets are available. Now, these are commercial rockets that are already in service right now. And so from what I understand, if a spacecraft could be designed and built, it could be ready to go aboard one of these rockets as early as 2031 if it gets funded. And that is, of course, a pretty big if. I guess then if we're waiting on funding, what's the sort of next step? Well, this report was published by the US National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine. And from what I understand, NASA almost always follows the panel behind its advice. So that's, I think, a step in its favour there. And if NASA do decide to go for it, it's suggested that it might cost $4.2 billion, which is a lot of dollars of course. But they might decide to partner with another space agency, maybe the European Space Agency, for example. And as luck would have it, last year, they published a study saying that they should partner with someone to study ice giant planets. So it could be that the stars are aligning, if you will, and that this could could be something that goes ahead in future.
1: Well, you know, we always love talking about space on the briefing chat, and we need more stories for it.
5: So what might this mission do? Well, the report proposes a mission that drops a probe towards Uranus to look at the atmosphere and as I said the drivers of what's causing this kind of swirling maelstrom and it goes on to say that the main probe should then you know spend years flying around the planet having a look at it maybe to get more of an idea of this complex magnetic field which might be causing the planet's glowing aurorae for example and also to have a look at some of the moons right so as I say 27 known moons so maybe they'll choose some that are perhaps big enough to have water underneath their icy surfaces for example so lots of excitement I think from research to find out what's going on on this planet. But I will say that there's a lot of other things in this report that aren't about Uranus, so we'll put a link to the news story in this week's show notes where you can have a read of that, and also a link to where you can find out more about submarine lasers. And also we'll put a link on where you, listener, can sign up for the Nature Briefing to get stories like this delivered directly to your inbox.
1: That's all we've got time for this week. But don't forget, you can always reach out to us on Twitter, at Nature Podcast. Or you can send an email to podcastnature.com. I'm Nick Petrichow
5: And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening.